Sermon text for today is Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. You can find this passage in the Blue Pew Bible on page 1524. Listen as I read God's word. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Here ends the reading. Good morning, everyone. If I've had the chance to meet you this morning, my name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood. And as always, it's great to be together with you today, and especially as we get to spend time, like we do each week, uh, looking into uh, what the Bible says. Uh, We are in a series right now in the book of Mark, and one of the things we've been doing throughout that series is just leaving space for you to share what God is doing in your life through the book of Mark. At the beginning of the series, we passed out these. These are Mark Bible journals, and uh, many of you took these. There's a number of these left out at the connections table, so if you would still like to grab one of these, uh, we just provide these as a tool, as a resource for you to help you spend time in the book of Mark and to give you a place where you can personalize this. You can write all over it. It's yours to keep. Uh, it's our gift to you. Uh, so we just want to encourage you all to be spending time in the book of Mark. And then as we do that, we believe that God will change us and that God will meet us. And so we want to hear from you the ways that God has been at work in your life through the book of Mark. And so we uh, have a little short open mic time each Sunday is what we've been doing. And so we've just been asking you, what are the things that you've been observing that maybe you're seeing in fresh ways? What are some things that God is teaching you personally? How are you uh, learning to delight in who God is based on what you're reading And so we just want to hear from you. So I want to just open it up, and if you would like to share, uh, remember, I won't hand the mic to you. You have a minute and a half, two minutes, absolute tops, and we'll take uh, maybe two or three this morning and then get into our text for today. So does anyone want to share? That's okay. I just wanted to say thank you for the challenge to pray that you issued a couple of weeks ago. So I was able to spend some time that week following that sermon, just meeting with God and saying, God, what do you have for me in this season of life where my kids are getting older and they don't need me 
so much every single moment. I have this, this much freedom now to start doing things. And so I decided to issue an invitation to some friends to have lunch and have some lunches set up with friends. And I'm hoping that that will yield even more spiritual fruit. I felt like that was what God called me to do right now with my little bit of extra free time that I have. Thanks for sharing that. One more. Chris. Um, as I've been uh, reading through, uh, I think one thing that's been encouraging to me, and hopefully it is to all of you, is just the number of times that the, the disciples completely miss the point and miss the boat. Um, they're with Jesus in person. They've seen all of these miraculous things happen, and they talk to him on a regular basis, and they still are missing the point sometimes. So uh, for me, as, as you know, I find myself doing that at times, it's encouraging to know that you know, as a human, we have those struggles, but Jesus didn't turn away from the disciples, and he doesn't turn away from us either. So, Amen. That's a good word. Okay, one more. It's, it's kind of interesting in this and the other ones that you gave in the lectures to out of Mark. It, it's, nothing would have happened if people weren't desperate for Jesus. That uh, lep- leper wouldn't have been healed if he wasn't desperate enough to come to Jesus. That lame person wouldn't have been healed if they weren't desperate enough to come to Jesus. And the thing is, we have to be desperate enough to come to him and pray if we want something to happen. We have to ask. Yeah, so good. All right, thanks for sharing, everyone. All right, so as we come to this passage this morning, I want to invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue will shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. God, we thank you that you are the God of new creation. We thank you, God, that you are the God of renewal and restoration and that you delight to bring your healing and renewal into our lives. Lord, we give you thanks for this passage and what it shows us about the healing of this man who wasn't able to walk. And again, we come before you and we stand in awe of your generosity and your grace and your power and your authority. We ask, Lord, this morning as we look at this passage that you would teach us that you, Holy Spirit, would be present with us here today in a unique and special way and that we would not leave here the same as when we walked in the door this morning. God, meet each of us exactly where we are 
in exactly what we need from you this morning. We trust that you will provide. So meet us now, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Well, during my time of preparation this week, God took me in a different direction than where I thought this message was going to go. Uh, this, this passage of Jesus healing this man who was unable to walk, this paralyzed man, is a somewhat well-known account, and one of the things that this passage brings up to us, one of the questions that it brings up, is the relationship between sickness and sin. It brings up the relationship between sickness and disease and sin. After all, Jesus is approached by a man who needs healing of his legs, and Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. And then after he forgives his sins, he heals his legs. And all throughout the Hebrew Bible, uh, the Old Testament, we call it, we see examples where sickness or disease is the result of someone's sin. That God uses those as means, that those are uh, God's way of bringing justice or bringing discipline onto his people. And of course, this makes us as modern readers very uncomfortable, right? (laughs) To think that uh, sickness or disease would be the result of sin, right? That just is like one of those like, well, hold on, let's maybe you know, pause for a moment here. We come to the New Testament, and we see that there are places in the New Testament as well that talk about a person's sickness or a disease or some physical ailment as the result of that person's sin or, or, or as, a, as a discipline from God. And so we sort of just have to wrestle with, right? We come to this passage and we see this sort of big question of, well, what's the relationship between sickness and disease and and sin? And is the sickness and the disease that we might experience, maybe if you have a physical health problem, is, is that the result of some sin in your life? You know, maybe some of us have experienced uh, unthoughtful people who just assume, you know, it's like, hey, you got a cold and they're like, well, what sin is in your life? You know, and it's always this sort of like, let's let's figure out what's wrong with you. And so maybe you've been like really hurt by someone who very quickly ascribed some sort of like sin underneath some thing that was happening in your life. But the question uh, in the text is, is, is a big question. And what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to completely punt on that question. I'm not going to talk about it at all, actually. And sorry for getting you interested. <laughs> that wasn't my point. Wow, should have. Okay. So I'll have to talk about that a different time. Um, that's a really important question to answer. And, um, and I'm not punting on this because I'm afraid to deal with it or because there's, you know, the challenge of it. If you've been around Elmwood for any length of time, you know that we're not afraid to talk about hard things. We're not afraid to talk about really like deep, difficult, complex subjects here. Um, but the reason I want to, uh, I just want to focus on something different is I, I was feeling drawn to a different aspect of this passage today. And while the, uh, the presence of sin and the relationship between sin and sickness is a really important thing, uh, there's also another really important aspect to this text this morning, and it's the opposition that Jesus faced. And as I've always you know, read and studied this passage, I've never come away like, with any real clarity or, or, or with real, any application of like, well, the opposition that Jesus faced. What is that, and what does that mean for us and, and all of that? So, What I want to do this morning is just think with you about the opposition that Jesus faced. And as we look at the passage, just kind of looking at it in two parts. And the first part I want to just explore with you this morning is the unexpected source of opposition to the kingdom of God. What we see in this passage is we see an unexpected source of opposition to Jesus, to God and his kingdom, and to uh, the redemptive purposes of God moving forward in the world. 
So if you go read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see that there's a constant continual theme of the opposition that Jesus faces. He's always coming into conflict with people, and we actually uh, see this coming from a very, very predictable source. Uh, We see this coming from Satan and his demonic entourage. So we don't even get a couple paragraphs into the book of Mark before we read about this, right? So Jesus, at the beginning of Mark, he is, he's baptized by John. And we know that what this is revealing for us is something of Jesus' divine identity. We see that it's uh, John, Mark rather, is telling us that in Jesus there's this new era of God's saving activity that has come into the world, that the kingdom of God is, has, has come in the person of Jesus. And then immediately after that, Jesus is sent out into the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan. And we don't get, the, you know, we don't get all the, the nitty-gritty details like we get in the book of Matthew, where Matthew tells us about what that, what that temptation was like. And he tells us about the back and forth between Jesus and Satan, and how it, in all of these moments of Jesus in the wilderness, the evil one is trying to pull Jesus off course. The evil one is trying to get Jesus to abandon the real mission for which he came, which is to lay down his life. And the evil one is saying, you know, it would be so much more comfortable. It would be so much more convenient. Your life would be better if you did what was best for you instead of laying down your life for others. And so this satanic uh, evil one is trying to pull Jesus off course. And we see him sort of uh, in opposition with Satan. But it's not only with Satan, it's also with Satan's uh, demonic entourage. uh, Satan is sort of the prince of demons, and then there's these other spiritual beings who are uh, these malevolent spiritual beings who are at work in the world, who want to do nothing other than to kill and to rob and to destroy and to hurt human beings who are created in God's image. And so the very first thing we see Jesus doing in his public ministry is he casts out one of these demons. He casts out one of these unclean spirits. And so we see all throughout the book of Mark and all throughout the Gospels, this sort of, this warring back and forth between Jesus and the kingdom of God and God's redemptive purposes in the world and Satan and his demonic spiritual forces, these uh, forces of darkness. And there's this opposition, this conflict that's taking place. And of course, there's pretty much none of us that are surprised by that, right? We look at that and we say, well, yeah, of course Jesus would be opposed by Satan and his demonic entourage. Of course, this is what would happen. But there's, in this passage, I think what we see is there is a opposition that ought to surprise us. In the beginning of chapter two, we see five stories that are gonna come consecutively, five instances where Jesus comes into conflict with the religious leaders. And it ends in chapter three, Verse 6, with the Pharisees going out with the Herodians and plotting to kill Jesus. So at the beginning of chapter 2, all the way to chapter 3, verse 6, there's five stories of Jesus coming into conflict, experiencing opposition from the religious leaders that ends in them plotting to take his life. And so as we read this, we see that Satan is opposed to the purposes of God in the world. Satan is opposed to Jesus. He's opposed to uh, the kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven. And then you've got these religious leaders who we see in the Bible who are in some way in partnership with Satan, who are at the very least doing satanic kinds of things in opposing Jesus and the advance of his mission in the world. And this ought to surprise us. 
You know, we're used to, you know, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, we're used to criticizing them for being opposed to Jesus, but this should, this should shock us. These are the people who are opposing Jesus? These religious leaders, these were the guardians of the gate, as it were, of Judaism in the first century. These were people who were the guardians of right doctrine. They were guardians of right practice. They loved the Torah. They loved the law and the instruction of God. And they wanted nothing more than to obey it and to see all of God's people obey it. So these are people who have a very high view of the Hebrew Bible and who want God's people to obey his instruction. And if there's anyone who ought to celebrate and welcome the coming of the Jewish Messiah, it ought to be these people. And yet what we see consistently throughout the Gospels, is that they are the ones who are vehemently and violently and ultimately murderously opposed to the man Jesus. So why are they opposed to Jesus? Well, this passage here tells us that it's because of who Jesus claimed to be. At the beginning of this passage, we read about Jesus. He goes to the city of Capernaum. This was his home base for ministry. He goes into Capernaum and he's in the house, which is in all likelihood referring to Peter's house because Peter's the one who lived in Capernaum. And so they're in this house and Jesus is preaching the word to them. And there's all these people that are gathering and the crowds are gathering in such large numbers that they're setting up chairs out on the lawn, right? They're setting up uh, overflow seating because, you know, in, in these first century houses, they're not like our modern American houses where you can fit, you know, if you have to cram 200 people in them, you can cram a lot of people in a house, You can cram maybe 50 people inside of one of these first century homes. And so Jesus is inside and there's people that are cramming inside the house and there's not even room outside the door and people are pressing in to be near Jesus. And you just sort of can can picture the commotion of this. You know, you, you walk by and you look at this house and it looks like, you know, is there like a house party or is there a block party or something going on here? Because there's, you know, people coming and going and there's all the sort of the commotion of this whole thing. And there's these four guys who want to bring their friend who's paralyzed to be healed by Jesus. Because they know that if they can get him into the presence of Jesus, Jesus can heal him. And so they bring their friend to Jesus, except they can't get anywhere near him because the crowds are pressing in. And there's too many people they can't get through. And so what they do is they come up with this plan that's actually quite ingenious. Is they go up on the roof and they start peeling away pieces of the roof and they lower him down. Now, first century homes um, had roofs that were made of beams of wood covered with straw. And the, uh, the top of your house would function sort of like a deck functions today in our society. So there's actually a staircase on these houses that would go up to the top. And because, you know, first century homes, they didn't have, you know, they didn't have big windows in them. So it got hot, it got stuffy, it was dark. Uh, And so you would go up onto your roof to catch some fresh air. You'd hang your laundry out to dry on the roof because it got the sunlight. You'd go up there just to sort of, you know, be on the roof because it was kind of like being on a deck. And so they go up on the top of this house and they begin pulling back the layers of straw and pulling back the layers of branches or whatever it was that was covering the roof. And you can imagine the people that are underneath there and there's pieces of straw and there's pieces of dirt and there's all this roofing material that's falling down on top of them and there's nowhere for them to go. You know, so maybe they're, you know, sort of trying to push back as far as they can, but they can't go anywhere. And then there's this man who gets dropped down, not literally dropped down, but they lower him down on this mat in front of Jesus. And Jesus, it says, saw their faith, which is referring surely to all five of them, right? 
the, the friends had faith enough to bring this man to Jesus. And this man who was paralyzed was certainly not there against his will. At the very least, he's like, you know, we'll give it a shot. What's the worst that can happen? So he had enough faith at least to be there and to tell his friends, yeah, you should take me to this Jesus guy. So Jesus looks at him and he saw their faith and he says to this man, your sins are forgiven. And in doing so, Jesus is making a claim about his divine identity. Now, when we read Jesus saying, you know, your sons are forgiven, this doesn't look like, to us modern readers, it doesn't look like too big of a deal. But this was an explosive thing to say because of what Jesus was claiming about himself. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, there are occasions where a prophet will announce forgiveness of sin to a person on God's behalf. So, for example, uh, David commits adultery with Bathsheba. And the prophet Nathan comes to him, confronts him on it, he repents, he asks for forgiveness, and Nathan announces to him, your sin is forgiven. You're not going to die. But there was never a place where a prophet forgave anyone's sins. So prophets could announce that God had forgiven someone's sins, but prophets don't forgive sins. Because you can't forgive sin on someone else's behalf. You can only forgive a sin if you have been sinned against. And so the religious leaders here in this passage, they know exactly what Jesus is saying. They know exactly what Jesus is claiming, and we know because of their response. Verse 6, now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And there's numerous passages in the Hebrew Bible that say God alone is the one who has authority to forgive sins. And so what, the, what these religious leaders, they understood, Jesus was not saying to this man, God has forgiven your sins. What they understood Jesus to be saying was Jesus looked at the man and said, I have forgiven your sins. So Jesus is claiming this divine identity. He's claiming that he has the authority of God to forgive this man's sin. And he knows what they're thinking in their hearts. And so he says to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. So Jesus heals this man, and the claim that they brought against him was the claim of blasphemy. Blasphemy was a serious thing in the Jewish world. Blasphemy was, in the Old Testament, punishable by death. And they bring this claim against him because blasphemy was to to speak in a contemptuous or in an inappropriate way about or against God. Blasphemy was, it meant to revile or to slander or to defame And so it's a serious thing for Jesus. If he is committing blasphemy, that's a serious offense that's punishable by death. And if Jesus is not who he says he is, they have every right to accuse him of blasphemy, right? But Jesus is exactly who he says he is. And he says to them, before they can even mouth their opposition, Jesus knows what they're thinking. And he says, what's easier? Obviously, it's easier to say to the man, your sins are forgiven, because there's no verifiable physical proof of that. You're going to say it, and no one knows if it's actually true. (laughs) 
And so Jesus says, you know, I'm going to do something that you can see to demonstrate that I have the authority to do something that you can't see. And so he heals the man's legs. He stands up and walks out in full view of them all. So throughout the Gospels, from very early on in his ministry, Jesus experienced significant opposition. He experienced opposition from Satan and his demonic entourage. And it's not just like isolated one-off instances, right? This was all of the time, Satan and all of his demonic entourage is constantly living in opposition against Jesus and against the kingdom of God and against God's redemptive purposes moving forward in the world. Always and continually. But he's also experiencing significant opposition from the religious leaders. And here again, we know that this was not some isolated incident, but this was, in essence, the entire Jewish establishment at the time. There were some people, there were some Pharisees or some religious leaders who did believe in Jesus. We know that. But ultimately, it is the religious establishment of the first century Judaism that put Jesus to death. And so Jesus is opposed by all of these different forces, and it seems impossible to overcome. If Jesus is opposed by all of these sources, it seems impossible for that to overcome. So we see in this passage, we see the unexpected and in some ways the overwhelming source of opposition to Jesus and to the kingdom of God. But then the second thing we have to observe is we have to observe the unstoppable advance of God's kingdom in the face of opposition. Because yes, Jesus is opposed. And yet we see that the advance of God's kingdom and God's purposes and the advance of God's mission in the world is unstoppable in the face of all of the opposition that to us looks insurmountable. Now we can see this by tracing this word blasphemy throughout the book of Mark. So I want to just ask you to look at a couple different passages with me. And uh, this word blasphemy comes up at a couple different important places. So obviously it comes up here where Jesus is accused of blasphemy. And the irony of this is that Jesus is the one being blasphemed. Right? These religious leaders are staring into the face of God saying, you don't have authority to forgive sins. Jesus is the one being blasphemed. Fast forward to Mark chapter 14, verses 61 through 65, where Jesus is on trial before the Sanhedrin. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 61. Let me find it here. Jesus is before the Sanhedrin and the high priest says to him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. When Jesus says that, that's not, he's not referring to his second coming. He's not talking about when he returns, he's going to come on the clouds and, you know, come to earth from heaven. Jesus here is quoting from Daniel chapter 7, which is a picture a vision that Daniel had of this mysterious human figure that he calls one like a son of man. And that son of man was taken 
on the clouds and ascended into the throne room and sat at the right hand of Yahweh and was given authority and power and dominion over all the nations of the earth. And so in Daniel 7, it's referring to the enthronement of the Son of Man. And so Jesus here is not saying, you know, you're going to see me come back again. What he's saying is you are going to see the Son of Man ascend and enthroned and receive dominion over all the nations of the earth. So Jesus here is not talking about his return. He's talking about his enthronement, which is going to happen when he's executed and he's raised from the dead and then he ascends to the right hand of the Father and is given all authority over all the nations. And so this is what Jesus claims about himself, that he is the son of man from Daniel 7. And the high priest tore his clothes and said in verse 63, why do we need any more witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. So again, Jesus saying what is true about himself, that he is the son of man who's been given authority over all the nations, speaking what is true about himself, he's accused of blasphemy. One last passage in the book of Mark. Jesus is hung on the cross because again, blasphemy was punishable by death and the Jewish establishment was not given authority within the Roman Empire to actually execute anyone through crucifixion. So the Roman government had to do that. So Jesus was handed over so that the Romans could do the dirty work. He's crucified and as he's hanging there and he's crucified, there are people who are passing by him and what are they doing? They're hurling insults at him. Does anyone want to take a guess at what a literal translation of the word hurled insults actually is? Yeah, it's the Greek word blasphemeo, which is clearly where we get our English word blaspheme. So in chapter 2, Jesus proclaims his divine identity as one who has authority to forgive sins, and he's blasphemed. In chapter 14, Jesus is standing trial and saying, I am the son of man from Daniel. And he's blasphemed. And then here, until the very, at the very last moment of his life, there are random people walking by him and blaspheming him. So Jesus, from the very beginning of his ministry, all the way to the end, Jesus is blasphemed. And at any moment, Jesus could have lashed out against them. Throughout Jesus' life, you see the, his opposition lashing out against him. You see the religious leaders, and you see Satan and his demonic entourage. They're lashing out against him. They want nothing more than to destroy him. And Jesus could have, at any moment, rightly lashed out against the religious leaders. He could have rightly lashed out against those demonic spiritual forces, and he would have been fully justified in doing so. And yet what Jesus chose to do was go to the cross. He chose rather to be reviled. He allowed himself to be slandered and spoken evil of and maligned. He allowed himself to be blasphemed. And the irony of the gospel is that Jesus stripped the demonic forces of their power by enabling or allowing himself rather to be stripped of his. Jesus was let himself be overpowered by these spiritual forces of darkness and the religious leaders, and that is precisely how Jesus stripped them of their power. Jesus hung naked and vulnerable and shamed on the cross, and as he was humiliated, 
that is how he openly and publicly humiliated his enemies was by being openly and publicly humiliated by them. So this is the mystery and this is the irony of the gospel that on the cross, it looked like the spiritual forces of darkness had won, didn't it? It looked as though Jesus did not have the power to overcome them, that he couldn't stand up in the face of the opposition, that, you know, the accumulation of of Satan and the demons and, and all the religious leaders and all the people that opposed Jesus, you know, he stood up against them and he just didn't have what it took. And so he found himself executed and that was the end of it. Yet we know the irony of the gospel and the beauty and the mystery of the gospel is that their opposition was the very thing God used to accomplish our salvation. Jesus' opposition from his enemies was not just some sort of ancillary, sort of extra, you know, it wasn't a blip in God's plan. It wasn't a wrinkle in the plan where God, the Father's like, okay, well, now that this is, you know, turning south, what do we do with this? I got to figure out a way to, you know, get around this. No, the opposition that Jesus faced was a part of God's very plan. It was the very thing God used to accomplish our salvation. We are saved and redeemed and rescued and set free because Jesus allowed himself to be overcome and swallowed up by his enemies. That is why we are free. That is how we are saved. And the good news, friends, this morning is that Jesus has conquered Satan, death, and hell on our behalf. Jesus has conquered Satan, death, and hell on our behalf. If we were to try and face those enemies on our own, in our own strength, we would be utterly consumed and utterly destroyed. And yet, in Jesus, God has conquered Satan, death, and hell on our behalf. And of course, we are still awaiting the time where Jesus' rule and reign that we heard read about in Psalm 2 this morning and that we prayed about in Psalm 2. We're awaiting the time when the reign of Jesus, who is the rightful king of creation, we are awaiting the time where his reign will be fully expressed on earth as it is in heaven. We are awaiting that time. But in the meantime, we can live with hope and confidence in everything we face because Jesus has overcome. In the meantime, we live with a longing for his return. Part of the way that we express our longing And one of the ways that we cultivate this longing is by coming to the communion table. You know, on the one hand, Jesus is really present with us as we receive the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. He meets us here as we come to the communion table. And on the other hand, it's just bread and it's just juice. And so we long We get the privilege of meeting Jesus at the table, and yet we long to see him face to face. Right? We long to, as the old hymn says, be in his presence with unsinning hearts, clothed in his righteousness alone. And Jesus' defeat, because Jesus conquered death, because he conquered sin, because he conquered hell, we have the assurance that that day is coming. And Jesus said to his disciples when he was eating this last meal with them, he said, I won't eat this with you again until I eat it with you in my father's kingdom. 
And we can read the book of Revelation and look at chapter 19, which talks about the wedding feast of the Lamb. And how in the new heavens and new earth, all of God's people will be in a celebration banquet and we'll get to be in the presence of Jesus. No more grape juice and crackers, friends. <laughs> right? As great as they are and as, as wonderful as they are, and God uses those, God infuses those and uses those elements to meet us. We have something better that's coming. And so we live with longing and expectation for that day. Amen? Amen. As we come to the communion table today and remember and celebrate Christ, I want to invite you to take just a few moments of silent confession and reflection.